Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29 of Peach Troops podcast where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm meeting here with Glenn Willis in advance of tomorrow's game four between the Hawks and the 76ers. And Glenn, what's the most important thing the Hawks have to do and why is it take advantage of Seth Curry's defense? <laughs> that is, they have to do more than they can to help her at the rim. That's for sure. Uh, I have ideas about how they might be able to do that. I'm curious if you do as well. I hope we can spend some time on that. But um, that might be 1B, 1A being make as many shots as they did in game one. Uh, that that would give them some more leeway on some of their other objectives, like uh, trying to do more to disrupt and beat, keep him off the free throw line. You know, less than 10 attempts at the line would be, you know, so the, if they could make shots to get a little bit of flexibility with the other things they have to do, I think to have an opportunity to control the game to some degree throughout, but, but attacking Seth. And then assuming we're going to maybe see more Quirk Maz with, you know, Green continuing to be out, that might be another person they could kind of treat the same way. So, you know, we shall see, but I'm with you that that's one of the things I am watching most closely from the very beginning of the game. Yeah, uh, I'm interested with Cork Mods. He he seems like he can be a high variability player. Uh, there are games where it's to the Hawks' advantage that he's out there, and there are games like Game Three where it's definitely to the Sixers' advantage. I think the Hawks are sort of in need of a mental boost, like they just. Losing two straight, especially losing two straight the way they did. I think the first quarter is going to be really important just from a psychological point of view. I'm not sure they have it in them to come back if they dig a big hole again. Yeah, and, 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 and to your point about shot making, I think that's a big part of it is that they'll have some shot makers out there and, and they just they need those first few jump shots to go down. Even if they end up on the night at kind of an average clip. I, I think they, they need to be above average on their percentages in that first quarter just to, to keep that feel. I, I agree. And it's not just sort of the mental obstacle that gets created if they're chasing from behind the whole game. The Sixers, you know, I mean, keep in mind, this is a really good Sixers team. I think from the conversations I'm having with different people, I think I'm the highest person I know on <laughs> the Sixers. I, you know, that's, we don't have to get into that too much, but they're really good. But, you know, they've never made the conference finals. So sometimes I'm not sure they know how good they are because they haven't really accomplished, you know, something big yet. And of course they were, they were right there against the Raptors and, you know, quite made that ridiculous shot. And right. you, maybe they, maybe they get to the conference finals if that shot doesn't go in, maybe they don't, we, we can't know that. But I think once – I think Philly, where they are in their own kind of effort striving to do something big this year, when they get like a 15-point lead, say, in the second quarter, I think they start to feel how really good they are in playing like a team that is as good as they are, where when it's closer, more competitive or whatever, I think they play just a, with a little bit um, less, you know, assuredness of, of who, who they are and what they can really do. You know, I, I felt like in game one when the Hawks kind of really came out and punched them, mostly through shot making, but they had really, you know, good, clean play, uh, yeah. apart from both teams turning it over a lot, you know, in that first half. Right. But that I thought they were like, well, you know, I thought there was a little bit of something going on there, maybe questioning themselves or, you know, did we, um, you know, 
that we not appreciate how good this Hawks teams can be coming out of a series with the Wizards. So I think it's super important to get off to a, a good start. I think it's important to make shots from the beginning. And I think for me, that kind of starts with who does Nate start with the obvious <laughs> four, you know, that's right. going to be interesting. I think, I think he needs more shooting. I'm guessing he knows that at this point, and there's right. some change coming. Uh, we saw a change in the second half of game three with Snell, you know, starting with that group, but um, you, you got you feel like you have a read on which way that part's going to go. I mean, it, it, you know, it's been Solomon Hill. It was Snell to start the second half and they got weird in the fourth quarter and tried the Collins Gallinari Capella front court. And he said, you know, that uh, we're just, we're trying to, we're trying some looks we want to see. Um, I don't know if you can start with that, but. I do think that we will see some of that again. I hope they do start with that. That's what I'm hoping for. And the reason I think that is, I think if you have Snell or Solo on the court, the thing they're most missing offensively with Hunter is a guy who can punish the cross match. So like now with Philly putting Simmons on Trey and Seth on Solo, instead of Seth, if that's either JC or Gallo, that's a real problem, you know. Um, and they can do some things that Hunter has traditionally done to go down on the post, use the face-up game, and all that sort of stuff and kind of put him to work. Now, Philly is a very good team defense, so it's not like, you know, we can just bank on both of them getting complete one-on-one, you know, opportunities without some sort of help, whether that's as simple as a stun or a dig or a full double or whatever. Philly's really a really good team defense. So, but I think you have to kind of – that's the way what you have to do when the team throws so much of their resources at trade to try to kind of take him up all. Yeah, that that's definitely, you know, that point about Hunter is definitely something <laughs> that I've, you know, I, I tried, I live, well, I've, I've been feeling that for a while. I tried to ask McMillan about that today and he just kind of shrugged and said, I, I can't answer that. I, specifically the way I phrased it was, you know, it was, how did I phrase it? Let's see here. I said, um, you know, is the best way to counter the 76ers putting, you know, in an ideal scenario where everybody's healthy, is the best way to counter Ben Simmons on Trey to have DeAndre Hunter beat up on a small. And he, you know, he just, he said, I, I can't answer that. Um, so he can't answer that, but I can. I, I, I think that's what it is. <laughs> and so. But, but, but don't you think that was his response only because Hunter's hurt? I mean, they, they, don't you feel like he didn't want to answer it for that? I thought it reason? was. I thought maybe he just didn't want to, you know, insult Solomon Hill or something like that. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, but you know, Hunter's just a better player off the dribble than than Solomon Hill is, and I, you know, half the league is Kevin. Probably more. Yeah, <laughs> I guess we got some centers, and yeah, maybe it's about exactly. Half. <laughs> maybe it's about half. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I really want to see about that is, is if you, you do play a Collins Gallinari Capella front court, can you guard Gallinari? Could, can you put Gallinari on, uh, Embiid and, you know, try to keep a rim protector there to help at all times. And sometimes it might be Collins and t- sometimes it might be Capella, but, you know, if you've got two guys like that on the court and neither one of them is guarding Embiid, uh, you know, it, it feels like one of them would, 
between Ben Simmons and, uh, you know, possibly Matisse Thybul being on the court, uh, you know, it feels like you should be able to have somebody cheat around the rim. And that worked well for the Hawks in round one. It worked really against, well. Against the Knicks. So, you know, it, it yeah. doesn't even seem like something that would take a huge adjustment. Say, hey, remember last week? Uh, we're going to do some of that stuff again. Yeah, and I, and, and I kind of threw that out there, the idea of potentially starting those three in a really big lineup. And I said, that's what I hope they do. And I emphasized the offensive value. But I think there's real defensive value, too, just in having more size out there. Philadelphia is not really punishing the Hawks with quickness. That's not to say they're never functioning as cutters, that they're never getting transition or secondary transition or whatever. But Embiid is the one that's really kind of doing all of the consistent, ongoing you know, work that, that uh, they're really struggling to do anything about. And so I just think even if you have someone doubling, if, you know, three of the guys on the court are, say, with their best offensive lineup, Trey, McDonough, and Herter, one of those guys coming down to stunt or double or whatever, uh, we even saw an example in game three where Trey came across the, the lane and tried to, you know, impact. I mean, that was his, he was in the spot to – it was his responsibility to help at the rim from the baseline side – but I mean, it, it, to a beat, it was like you know watching you know, you know someone dealing with a fly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> almost I mean, you it know, it's a foot a foot plus difference. So right, and and, and, and that doesn't even take into account wingspan. He's just not going to get in that airspace. Right, and and, and Trey tried really hard, and you know, yeah, Trey. Effort. You, you could see some of his defensive rotations are like they're fast, but they're even faster because, you know, it's like a mind read and he's, he's seeing it happen fast and reacting super quick in real time, but yeah, uh, you know, and it doesn't always happen. And, and, but the, there are plenty where it does. And sometimes he's just, just not physically, you know, up to it, but he, he's definitely sticking in his nose and trying to get the ball before it goes up high and, and doing a lot of things. Agreed. And he's been disruptive at times, which is, mm-hmm. I think some of the best defense, some of the best, um, type of defense he can play is kind of, you know, being a disruptor and throwing off timing and, you know, things like that. So, but I, but I think, you know, if you have Gallo and Collins out there, both, you know, half, you know, depending on where everybody sets up and what field he's running, you know, just on pure math, the helper is, you know, 50% likely to be one of your two power forwards that you have on the, on the fourth at time. I think that's just going to have a bigger impact. I don't want to suggest like, oh, that's going to shut and be down. I don't think that's the goal no. ever, you know. But I think if you could just kind of make him deal with more size uh, than what they've been kind of throwing at him, then that's um, that's something. And then, you know, you know, Gallo and Collins are both, you know, two, uh, two of the better shooters to their position in the whole league. And so, like, that gives you the spacing that you want to see with Trey on the court if, if you know, Philly's using a second defender in his area or on him or whatever that is, it's not like you're like in, like in some cases, if we're talking about just a, a, in a vacuum, a team deploying two power forwards, usually you're sacrificing shooting in that situation. That's not true no. in this case. Um, so, um, you know, so we'd have to see what the Philly counter was if they did that, but, you know, they went to it um, for some in the fourth quarter in game three. And so you feel like, I think Nate said, what, everything's on the table or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and so you have to feel like that's one of the things on the table, whether they start with that or not. For sure. Um, what, what else is there to, to do with it? I mean, it seems like, yeah, it's kind of the same topic, but I, 
I feel like one of the big things is, you know, Embiid's averaging 16 free throw attempts and you, you noted it before, like if that's nine or something, that's a big difference for the Hawks. Uh, he's going to get to the free throw line, but it really can't be 16. And I think, you know, putting Gallinari on him could help. I think he's a little less likely to foul in certain circumstances. He's just going to play him low. And I think that's, you know, given where Embiid is right now, he's really not trying to plant his leg in a lot of cases. I think just kind of being under him uh, could actually be a little bit of a good thing here. He, you know, if he wants to turn around, he's going to get it. And if he's hitting it, then maybe you have to come with some sort of change up and counter it at that point. Uh, you know, if he gets a rhythm going, but uh, you know, try to get it where he's not getting free throws and, you know, not getting a clean look at the rim, uh, but live, live with the turnaround until he's gotten to a string where, you, you know, it's time for a change of pace. Yeah. It, I mean, the one thing I would keep an eye on if that's the case, and I, and I think that's worth considering and worth trying is to see how it goes. Um, but one of the adjustments the Hawks did make in game three, even though it ended up from a results standpoint not mattering, is that they pushed Embiid off his spots. Embiid was catching the ball, even yes. when he was trying to post often at the three-point line, much further out. Yep. Um, he's so skilled, he was still able – I mean, that's one of the things that, is, that has impressed me so much about Embiid in this postseason is that he's showing – an ability to kind of dominate even when he doesn't get to his spot now. Now it's, now it's not a big sample size yet. And you can throw more at him potentially and kind of see if you can affect his rhythm um, and all of that. But I think Capella, because of his quickness advantage, uh, can was able to impact and beat and kind of get him to move out. And, and in game one and two, it was as if that wasn't even the goal. The whole goal it looked to me was like, to make Embiid shoot over his own individual defender and live with the results. And so, you know, wherever Embiid sat up, Capella just kind of was half a step away. You know, kept his hands back um, and just tried to make sure Embiid couldn't move towards the middle of the paint, which is Embiid's favorite place to work. Sure. And they kept him out of the middle, but he made every, you know, face-up shot. He made, you know, he made everything. And then game two, I think he was five for six from three. So what do you do about that, you know? But at least in game three, they pushed him off his spots. And That's Embiid right. had to Embiid had to work harder uh, in game three to get his. And we don't know if the fourth quarter would have been close, if that would have been a factor in Embiid potentially running out of gas a little bit, getting a little tired. And and then that, you know, kind of being something that worked to the, to the Hawks' favor. So I don't think Gallo could push him off of his spots. Um, I think if Gallo played him, it looked more like Capella game one, game two, where he was just staying in front and trying to get Embiid to, you know, shoot over him. Um, where with Capella, um, you, you know, might be able to kind of, like he did in game three, kind of push him out further away from the rim on his post touches. But then uh, NBA coaches will say, we're going to throw a lot of different looks at this guy, that guy. They're usually talking about point guards, but I think that applies here where you're, For sure. you can you can play, you know, in a quarter, five minutes of Gallo playing him one way, five minutes Capella playing him another way, whatever, and make Embiid have to kind of at least switch it up a little bit, I think. And that could, could serve some energy for Capella. They, they need a little bit more from him on offense. Agreed. I, I don't think they're getting the, the best version of the Capella the role man that they've had all season. I think the defensive grind is taking a toll on him. Uh, I mean, you, you don't expect him to be the same offensive rebounder that he's been all season when he's out there with Embiid because it's just, it's, it's not the same. Rebounding versus Embiid is, is not the same as rebounding against your average NBA center. But I, I think as a role man, 
there are more opportunities for him than he's been getting. I don't think he's he's I don't think he's in a confident place offensively. And uh, you know, again, in terms of a psychological start, I think a couple of touches for him early, seeing the the ball go through the basket, uh, can be really helpful. I thought Collins had a good game as a role man in game three, but I, I yet to really feel like that at all for Capella for the entire series. I think he, he needs a couple successful interactions with his point guard early, and, and that could go a long way towards him being a threat for the minutes that he's out there. Yeah, I, I agree. And if, you know, another way I, I've come to look at these games in this series is against New York, I felt like the Hawks, if they got to about 100, 607 points, New York was unlucky to get there. And New York just didn't have enough offensive punch to kind of kind of really get there. And that I think that that held true. I, I don't have all the stats right in front of me, but I don't think New York – the one game New York won was like, I think, one of 92 to 80-something. It was like a low 90s, high 80s score. Um, and what, what I see in this series is when Philadelphia is able to take the ball out of Trey's hands enough – that, um, you know, Herder and Bogdanovich are good for what we all expect them to be. Both of them are in their first postseason, and they're good, you know, I think. But when the Hawks are playing through their secondary and tertiary, you know, creators, whether that's Gallo, Herder, Bogdanovich, or whomever, I think their ceiling in a game like that is about 105 to 108 points, kind of in that range. That's just not enough against Philly where it was enough against New York. So I don't know if the Hawks are – part of that is – the reason I mentioned that is, to your point, Capella across the season has generated easy points at the rim in the lob game, diving to the rim, all that sort of stuff. And and they have to move Embiid around to kind of open that up. And, you know, there's different ways to do that with some high screen and roll potentially. And Philadelphia adjusted, you know, after game one and has stabilized and anchored uh, Embiid closer to the paint and the rim and not getting him really that far away from there. And that's one of the reasons Capella can't get there. But there are some things you can do potentially to kind of move Embiid around early in an offensive possession for the Hawks. Um, but they need those easy points at the rim to get to closer to 115 um, in a game, which is where I think they need to be to kind of have a, a, a shot to get it a win versus Philly. Philly's not going to, you know, let them get a 97 to 92 game just because Embiid is just too productive and too efficient um, as their primary offensive player. Um, at least to this point, the Hawks haven't been able to uh, make him in something less than that yet. I am ready to eat some crow. Yeah, yeah. For what? I, I had I had doubts that Onyeka Okongwu would would be good in this whole oh. season, yeah. and I was wrong. He's I like what he's doing. Same. Yeah, yeah. He's he. I think he has great instincts, and for a rookie, he's smart. You know, for a rookie, um, and he's had a few rookie moments, but he works really hard, and he knows where he's supposed to be. Um, with Embiid, sometimes his lack of size kind of shows up, but it's, a, it's not because typically because he's in the wrong spot or he's late. I mean, against the Knicks, he was like always on time. He always knew where to be. And that's been largely true in this series, too. It's just been a different physical challenge. But that's been true for Capella, too. Capella has struggled with the f- physical challenge of dealing with Embiid here, too. But, yeah, it's it's been good. And I, I think a few episodes ago, you, used, you threw out the premise, like, let's just assume – 
what if the Hawks aren't the eventual NBA champions? <laughs> Let's talk about the value of letting yeah. a Kongu play here. Yeah. And I think, and I think I they're think getting that. Get it. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I think that's going to be, there's some ROI that we're going to see next season and the season after that by the fact that um, Nate has shown some confidence in that rookie and let him have some minutes. And, you know, I think it's been smart. Um, you know, maybe if I were the type to take a victory lap, maybe I'd be doing that. Cause I think I said, I think he'll be in the rotation, play five-ish minutes in the first half, and if it goes well, he'll play in the second half. If it doesn't go well, they'll shorten it and kind of cut him out second half rotation. And um, I mean, I guess I even undersold because he's played more than than what the way I described it. But my victory lap was about saying he'd be in the rotation. Right, right. <laughs> but right. I'm not. I don't do victory laps. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm talking more about the defensive end than the offensive end. I, right. I still think that you know. I guess in terms of not eating crow, there there might be some idealized version where uh, the Hawks would be better off if he didn't play. And, and all of that value would be on the offensive end because I think defensively, which is, you know, really where his future lies, uh, there's there's a lot there. Yeah, I, I think the reality is, is that when they're play, playing from behind, he can't play. Yeah. Just because they, they need five shooters or, you know, whatever that is, you know. Um, and, you know, or just the bigger lob threat, the, you know, you know, the, the lob threat who has more nuance than getting out of screens and knowing when to slip, you know, all that sort of stuff. But like against New York, they were really never in that spot. And so that's why he was always, you know, he had utility there Mm -hmm. in this series. If they continue to play from behind, I do think it's harder to envision him being out there because you've got to get Gallo and Collins out there to maximize your shooting lineups um, and then you've, you know, you've got to make a hard, de- if they're playing from behind, you got to make a hard decision about Capella because I think most, the average NBA coach in the postseason when playing from behind would play Capella and Collins at the four and the five for long stretches just to get extra shooting on the floor. Um, uh, but, but, you know, if, if Capella is helping generate points at the rim, then that's, that's not as hard of a decision. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think there's been great value in letting the, the rookie playing and, and get get these repetitions. Um, to kind of shift gears a little bit, what do you? Wh- who's going to be in the NBA Finals? <laughs> like, I, I don't. I like it's. You know, I, none of these teams has won a championship since like 1983 when the Sixers won. I think <laughs> there's a lot of fresh blood, but there's also a lot of up and down teams. Uh, the Suns are kind of rolling, but you know, everybody else has had some moments and some uh, moments they'd probably like to have erased. And there's a seems like a fair amount of parity, I guess. I, I don't know. I, I'm like trying to picture who's going to be in this NBA Finals and. I guess I would say, for me, I would say Nets, Suns, but, you know, if Kyrie's gone, ooh, that, that changes a lot of things. Yeah, and you've asked me a tricky question because if I, if I give my answer, I'm going to have to explain. No, because I think the Sixers are coming out of the East. Okay. But what that means is that I've, it sounds like I've accepted that the Hawks are losing this series. Um, what I'm saying is I think the Sixers are the likeliest team to come out of the East. I think I mean, it's going to be hard. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, the, and the Hawks would have to do, like, really great work to get this to a game seven, you know, even, you know, and all of that. Uh, and I don't want to put it I – don't, 
I never want to put anything past Trey, you know, in terms of what he can do, what is possible and all that. And I'm going into Monday's game trying to be as optimistic as I can that they're going to find some stuff that really challenges what Philly does. But, you know, I was chatting with some of the Peace Street Hoops guys earlier today, and I was saying I ha- I would have Philly beating Brooklyn even if Harden, Katie, and Kyrie were all healthy. I think Philly still wins that series. Ooh. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I think I said that. <laughs> oh, yeah? I, I Yeah, because I've been, I've been talking about, you know, the uh, – I tried to use that analogy that that Sixers, Bucks, Nets was like a game of rock paper scissors, and I and I kind right. of think that the the Sixers were the oh, team that's to, right. to to beat the Nets, but uh, right, yeah, I think I think now that now I'm remembering, you said that if it were Bucks versus Philly right now, that that would be tougher for Philly, but if the if the Nets yep. can take out the Bucks, then the yep. Philly has a more viable path to the finals. I think yeah, it's kind of I, I think I think Bucks Sixers would have been an amazing series with, with and, Brooke Lopez. No, and, and it might be now. <laughs> now it might that's be true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Never uh, say never. Yeah. yeah. Um but I just it's it's kind of bonkers to me that the Nets are in the East and that, you know, they added Blake and they, you know, they got hardened earlier in the season and and they just never bothered to get anybody that can deal with indeed like how yeah. what are they going to do you know it's hard and to find those guys on the on a budget discount that's that's one thing that's hard to get it yeah and, I, I mean, guess maybe you, they could have tried for alex len at some point i don't you know he wasn't the answer yeah. for the wizards in that series no so. no but i mean you know like when the raptors got through i was convinced that they traded for marcus all specifically for the reason to deal with Embiid because as good as Ibaka is and at some of the things that he does, he's not a guy that can really deal with, you know, a guy like Embiid. And, right. and now Embiid, what, I mean, just so if, if a Sixers fan happens to hear this, Embiid was not healthy in that series. And so it kind of ended up, Gasol wasn't as important as he would have been if Embiid was like something like he is now. Now Embiid's a better player right now than he was years ago. There's, there's, you know, oh, there's sure. no doubt about that, mm-hmm. you know, but um. Um, but to me, it's like, what do they do? I mean, is like, when's the last time DeAndre Jordan played? You know, is that a is that a thing? You know, he, I mean, he wouldn't. No, he he wasn't. But no, I, yeah, <laughs> that that that's that's me trying to figure out like, yeah. what are they thinking? Not yeah, not me no. saying that's a solution. Not right, at all. right. I mean, maybe you they know. should have been trying to get Andre Drummond or something. Think well, you know, making that kind of assumption, but. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe they couldn't compete with the Lakers, and I guess the Lakers were saying that he could start. So, right, you know, that that was probably a more appealing situation than uh, Brooklyn at the time. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know what you do, but like, I, my thought was like, do you try to ship out Dinwiddie and get like a, a Jonas Valanciunas back? Can you kind of yeah. you know their salaries aren't too far apart? So, I mean, my point is that when you're in the whatever the Kyrie, Katie, Harden window left is if that's two years or three, whatever that is, right. you don't take unnecessary risks. And Dinwiddie, uh, pretty early in the season, had no value to them this season. And I'm surprised. Like, why not go get Horford? You know, at some point, right. if you can make that happen, why not? Like I said, why not try to make a deal for Valanciunas? You know, if you can make that happen. Heck, the the Spurs signed Gorgie 
and Gorky could throw a lot more Embiid right now. I'm not saying he's going to – I mean, yeah. I'm not saying he's an Embiid stopper, not even close to it, right. but he gives them something that they're, the guys that they, you know, have right now don't. And, you know, and Gorky, ha- I don't know what his real reputation in this league. Maybe the guys just didn't really trust him. And this is basically a team that's built around guys that Katie and Kyrie trust, and they brought Hardman. But it's still kind of Katie's circle and Kyrie's circle – and maybe that's what prevented them from going out and getting someone that's kind of an unknown, you know, to those two guys. I mean, we can kind of talk about this is speculation for sure, but I have to think that was a part of it. And in my mind, when I think about the possibility of Brooklyn and Philadelphia meeting up in the conference finals, you know, I I, I imagine Ben Simmons, Ben Simmons on Harden. You know, I imagine Matisse Tybal on Harden. Maybe Ben on KD. You know, I imagine, you know, you know, kind of those those guys that they have to kind of throw out there, you know, Danny Green um, on Harden when they, before Danny went down was, I think, uh, an option. You know, Danny's faced Harden in the, in the postseason many times. Um, but they, you know, when you think about what Brooklyn throws at their opponent offensively, Philadelphia has a template of an answer or template of a response. When you think about what Philly throws at their opponent offensively, Brooklyn is like the cupboard's bare, you know, to me. So I, you know, but on the, on the, on, on, in the West, I mean, I don't believe in the Clippers. Um, I don't either. I think the, I think the Suns get through, but what I will say is against Dallas later in that series, when they all, including Paul George started to defer to Kawhi and Kawhi was playing like the Raptors Kawhi where, you know, against the Warriors, you know, the last two and a half games of that series, the yeah. offense was basically Kawhi getting whatever ball screen he wanted to get whatever matchup with whatever defender the ball screen brought. And, and if they kind of are able to go to that plan and stick with that plan, I start to feel a whole lot more hopeful about the Clippers. But how do, how do you see the West? I think it's wide open. I mean, I, I, I'm picking the Suns, I think, but just – uh, not with any real uh, conviction. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I and, don't and, feel that strongly about it. Yeah, and and to be clear, so the uh, Jazz fans don't be bad. I picked the Jazz beat the Clippers in the series because I don't have confidence in the Clippers. Now the Conley injury um, changes That's that a little bit. Yeah. yeah, and then Donovan. I'm not sure what's really going on with the ankle. You know. No doubt he'll try to push through that and all of that, but that that certainly changes that. So I, I I would have to think that the smart math right now has the Clippers kind of coming out and facing the Suns because of you know the all of the Utah initiations kind of tied up in injury and quasi injury situation. So I think we're going to see a Barkley a Barkley Finals uh, Sixers and Suns. <laughs> oh. You said Barkley. I thought Chambo Barkley Center. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, a Char- Charles Barkley's two prominent former teams. So. I went the wrong way with that one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to hit on here? Um, I don't. You know, I don't think so. Um, you know, do they start? You know, a, the big lineup. Or do they move Herder in and have the distal ball handling to start? Tell that tells me are they prioritizing offense or defense or you know to start the game? Um, it's a, it's not an easy decision, but you know I, I think people that talk about it as if it is an easy decision, I, I think they're not, not serving the conversation well. 
Um, so I'll be fascinated. I mean, I, I, I doubt we'll know until about, what, 30 to 45 minutes before the game who the actual starting lineup is. Yeah, sure. Um, They'll probably, you know, try to take it all the way to 30, which is sort of the <laughs> legal right. NBA limit. Yeah. I don't think you'll and hear so, anything before that. Right. So and then the, other, the only thing we didn't really touch on is can they do anything else to get Trey back in, in control offensively, you know, and, you know, they've had a few days here and, you know, nothing really jumps out at me, but um, can they start him off ball, bring him into more DHOs instead of the high pick and roll? Can they use, you know, him starting in the corner, coming into DHOs and letting him attack quickly? So I look for, I'm also looking for a little bit of, can they bring, and, and you know, Kevin, what this reminds me of, you know, I know we're, we're looking to wrap here. Well, do you remember you, the you got all the time you want? Keep going. The Hawks Celtic series, um, where after two games, two thousand eight. No, no, no. This was oh, okay. the, this was the forty eight win team. I think the yeah, year yeah, after yeah. the sixty. Two thousand sixteen. Uh, yeah, this is the one where Isaiah punched Dennis. Is that right? Does that sound that right? Sounds right. Yep. Okay. So in that series, after two games, I think Brad went to his assistant coaches and said, I want all your ideas about how we can use Isaiah off ball because the Hawks and Bud had basically just broken, you know, anything the six, the Celtics wanted to do with Isaiah starting on ball as the initiator. And it was just, I kind of choked him out of that spot. I, that, makes me wonder like is there a similar conversation going on between Nate and his assistant coaches of okay how do we start Trey off ball but then bring him back into the actions where he's deadly you know creating and that's probably more less balls traditional ball screen more DHO more lifting from the corner into that mm-hmm. um, and which is I think historically been something that Trey has significantly preferred less you know, he wants that downhill feeling of kind of sure. getting across half court and all that sort of stuff. But I think, you know, the thing here is he's going to have to embrace uh, that as something that, that could work for him. Now, he's been great about giving the ball up when he needed to and trusting his teammates. Yeah. And I think he deserves credit for that. But like I said earlier, if that's the fullness of the plan is to give it up when the defense dictates – I think they're, they cap themselves out about 106, 107 points. So, you know, in addition to who starts, do they play the, the big lineup? Do they start with the big lineup? Or does Herder go into the starting lineup? Or does Snell go back in there to give them more shooting? That's all super interesting to me. But just as important, I think, maybe, is how do they get Trey to be positioned to have more impact in game four than he's been – that's not to say he's been bad, but just to position him to have more impact in game four than he's had – for most of the last two games. That's another thing I keep an eye on as well. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. My pleasure. Uh, hopefully we get to do it a bunch more, which I, I guess that. implies that you're rooting for one team for another, which we're not supposed to do, but, you know, uh, it's always, always good to have a job, Always, always good to have, something to do so i can't no, i mean that. i my, my background is like I, I grew up a hawks fan and i can admit that i hope the hawks do well um but i separate my analysis and i separate you know i i don't i don't cross over between the fan and the writer the fan and the analyst and you know all of that sort of stuff so i just try to compartmentalize <laughs> but i'll be honest that i i hope the hawks do well and would love to see them uh you know as far as I can. In this yeah, game. good theater is good theater. It's better than uh, what we got out of Suns Nuggets. 
For sure. Yeah. <laughs> the kind of a thump there at the end with Jokic getting ejected. So yeah, those need to go. Hopefully that's gone for good and we don't have to do the wind up frustration file anymore. I hope so too. <laughs> have a good night, Glenn. Thanks for having me, Kevin. <laughs>